0: This morning, um, Doug Berglund is going to speak here. Doug is the son of Ron and Nita, who were missionaries in Indonesia for 44 years. Doug has been a missionary in Indonesia for the last 28 years. He's with New Tribes Missions. He's here on furlough, has agreed to tell us a little bit about the work he's doing there, but actually bring it into focus and talk about the culture problem that they have, we have here in America as well. So, um, with that, I want to thank Doug for being here and pray that you give him your blessing. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to share with you this morning. Uh, Nancy and my wife Nancy and I are here visiting for the week, and the Lord worked it out for us to have this wonderful opportunity. I love coming back to Wyoming, it's always felt like home. And uh, even out in the jungles of Sulawesi, when I get lonely for Wyoming, I just put on an episode of Sheriff Longmire <laughs> or two and watch them and it makes me feel like I'm back home again. So I thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity and really I want to share with you something of uh, from the scripture this morning but I'm going to weave it together with a story and just allow you to uh, kind of enter into our world a little bit and I hope it will be a blessing to you. Uh, we serve in Indonesia, one of the largest uh, Muslim Countries in the world, uh, the highest percentage of Muslim population, 80 uh, percent, and uh, we just really counted a privilege to have been there for a long time, serving in a place where one would not imagine we could be, and uh, we're just so thankful for the Lord keeping us there. We live in the central part here, an area of Sulawesi and Maluku, and that's where we primarily serve, although our ministry now takes us quite a bit outside of that area. Indonesia is located on just the uh, uh, lower corner of the 1040 window. For those of you familiar, in missions, we consider this to be the least reached part of the world is inside this window. And when you take a look inside that window, the uh, numbers of people, the religious picture, the challenges of reaching inside that window are simply astonishing. Uh, There's no real way to capture it, but... If I were to take you to these six countries, um, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India, they would represent a total of uh, more than 3,000 unreached people group. That's the number on the left. number on the right is the population of those countries. As you can see, India with 1.2 and a half billion people. And uh, in these countries, that percentage in the middle is the percentage that is unreached, over 95% are unreached. Not only that, but over 95% would never have met a, or over 80%, I'm sorry, would never have met a born-again believer. 3,000 people groups, uh, 1.6 billion people, and this is uh, simply one of the least uh, reached parts of the world, one of the most difficult parts of the world. And our goal and and our challenge as we serve in the corner of that window is to see the church equipped to push into the window. And so that's what we primarily focus on, equipping and mobilizing the church to move into the window. Sorry, I just knocked this off my ear. There we go. This team is one of the teams that serves with us. It's called the Pelling Team. That's because they serve on the island of Pelling. If you look at this missionary team, you would notice right away that most of them are not from here. There is one tall German lady standing in the background. She's the Bible translator for this team. But they are very much uh, a team that is made up of people right from nearby in the harvest field itself, a church that has sent them there to serve in this community. Now, to get there, we live in this city called Palu. And if you want to get there, you go to the other end of this arm, which is about an 18-hour bus ride and then you uh, take a, a boat across that bay. Uh, this area that's circled is where those team, that team primarily comes from, and this is the area where they're serving out in these islands. And um, it's, a, it's not, a, not a same language, it's a very different language group, and I wanna tell you a little bit about this people group that live out in these beautiful islands. As you can see, it's a gorgeous place, uh, kind of place that tourists love to go to, they love to go out to this little island. just uh, you can see it from the porch of one of these missionary families, and you can snorkel there, uh, enjoy the beauty of God's creation, uh, wandering through the village, it would look something like this, and then you'd come across the church. You might say, well, why do you have a missionary team working in a place where there's already a church? Well, I want to tell you about this church a little bit. This is the inside of it. And uh, as you can see, they meet together every Sunday. They do all of the same things we do in church everywhere else around the world. They sing, they pray, they listen to a little sermon, they give their offerings. Uh, in many ways, you could walk into that and you would see the same things going on that you see in any other church. This church was the product of the ministry of a Dutch missionary in the, from 1890 to 1930s. He was in Sulawesi in a nearby area. And Albertus Crude learned a tribal language, and he started a church in that area. After him, many successive generations then started taking the church and moving out to other cultures around it. And they took all of their culture from the area where he was, and they simply transplanted the church culture from Holland to his area, and then out to these other places. And so it left people quite confused, actually, about what was the real nature of of the church. If you were there on a Sunday, as I was in this particular picture, and you, after the service, everyone will come up, and they will ask for a blessing from the people who have conducted the service. And that's very much part of this culture, this underlying culture. If you think about it, why do they ask for the blessing? Actually, something that's not wrong in itself. But if you think about it, here are people that have all their life Sought the blessing of the spirit world for everything that they did. And so they have simply taken a component of what was already there in their old worship of the spirits and incorporated it into their understanding of what the church is for. Everyday life in the village goes on. Uh, they they live a very simple life. If you were to go by the grave, you would see those people who are in church on Sunday putting out food for the people who have died. Uh, taking care of the spirits of the ancestors. This is a very common practice among them. Uh, This is a, a ceremony that's conducted once a year. They actually usually do it on a Sunday afternoon right after church. And all the people just simply leave church and they go out and they take this white chicken, they sacrifice this white chicken as a sacrifice to the spirits so that the evil of the village will be driven away for another year. And in order to do that ceremony, they have the pastor of the church, he accompanies them out there, and he actually prays a short prayer of blessing on the ceremony before it starts. This is how confused these people have become. They have another very interesting custom. When a baby is born, the placenta is put into a coconut shell and taken by one of the family members out and hung on a tree in the yard of the house. And it's left there for a long time. And actually that placenta is carried to the tree by a very specific person. Every person, uh, every family needs to choose the person who has the personality most like that they would desire to have in the child and carry that placenta to the tree. All of these things that are happening around in the village give us visible evidence that something is not quite right underneath, right? It makes us wonder what really is the understanding of the Gospel? What really do they understand about the God of the Bible? And this goes very much into the heart of what I would like to share with you. So life is going on in this village. People are confused. People are are wondering uh, what it is that uh, they uh, need to understand. And uh, our team is there. They're learning that language. They're learning that culture. Mostly they're trying to learn what is the underlying story that is guiding the people in this paling area so that they would practice this kind of mixture of old and new religion and uh, worship of the spirits in such a blended form. Well, I want to uh, take some time this morning and just talk about this underlying story. Um, a meta narrative is the common term for it, and it just simply means that there is a grand story that, is, that answers some basic questions for us. For instance, where did everything come from? What went wrong? What is our purpose in life? What can we do to make things better? What happens in the end? You know, everybody all around the, the, the world is asking those kinds of questions. And they're asking those questions, and they're finding the answers to those questions in what we might call the underlying story of life. If you think about it, the way the Bible is laid out, it's this grand story, it's a long narrative, and it reveals the character and the purposes and the plans of God, but it does it in stories when you go into paling and you start understanding what paling people believe about the origins, about what went wrong, you realize they have some very different stories about where everything came from. Very different stories about what went wrong. A very different story about how to make it right. And a very different story about what happens in the end. These contrasting meta-narratives. So the story, as Scripture gives it to us, God's perspective on the beginning, the middle, and the end um, is very different from that which is believed by the paling people. We might look at it kind of like this. God's story, truth, has to engage Satan's story. Satan's story has been around for a long time, ever since the Garden of Eden, where, when Eve was tempted and the Satan, the serpent, said to her, did God really say, remember that? That was the beginning of creating an alternative story. That was the beginning of telling a story about the history of all things and what was going to transpire and what would happen in the end that would have a very different outcome. And as men have believed Satan's lies, they've been drifting through life in a story. You know, people are pretty helpless inside Satan's story until somebody comes along and introduces them to God's narrative. Until somebody comes along and introduces them to the truth about God from his story. And we get that from the Bible. We get that by beginning in the beginning with Genesis and the creation of all things and following the story through. What went wrong? What's been done to make it right? What happens in the end? Now you might be assuming, well, yes, everybody knows that story. But that is no longer true even in our culture in America. I think you and I need to realize that there are many, many people that are believing a very different story. And because of that, they're trying to understand God's character, plans, and purposes, but trying to filter it through the lens of a different story. And so they're coming up with their own version of truth. Think about it this way. The the storyline that's been established through our culture or through Satan's story has been taught for generations And many people are thinking that that's actually in the Bible somewhere. That Darwinism is in the Bible somewhere. And because of that, they're trying to interpret life through the lens of lots of things that are actually not part of the story. That's what happened in Pele. That's what happened when those people heard truths about God if you will, bullet points of systematic theology. God is always present. God is always powerful. God is always um, omniscient. He knows everything. Great. How did God tell us that? He told us that in the story. God didn't just give us bullet points about him. Instead, he told us stories about how he interacted with the world that he created and with man And through those interactions, he's telling us that he is like this. So if you don't know the story, you will very likely end up with wrong beliefs about God, about sin, about how to remedy sin, and about what happens in the end. So the story is very key to our understanding. And the way God did that is through what we call progressive revelation, which just means that God didn't give us the story all at once, but he gave it to us in small pieces, right? Gave us a little at a time. Each of those stories connected. This gradual unfolding of God's character, plans, and purposes through the lenses of those stories. So as we become familiar with those stories, we ought to ask ourselves, what does this particular story, the stories that came before it, the story that I'm currently reading and the stories that will come after it, what do they tell me about God? What do they tell me about man and sin? What do they tell me about how to approach God? Or what do they tell me about what's going to happen in the end? And we'll find that this story is very, very interconnected. That you will be able to see the threads of those truths and thought, those themes, through the entire Scripture. I'm so thankful that the kids are going to be going through the Bible in a year, particularly that they would capture the narrative. Capture the narrative. If you've thought reading through the Bible in a year would be very difficult, it usually is because we get bogged down somewhere around Ezekiel 23, right? But think of it this way. What if I could read it as a story? What if I focused in my reading of the Bible in a year on the narrative of Scripture? The stories that tell the story of what God was doing. And it's pretty easy to do. In fact, you can do it without nearly taking a whole year. And I encourage you to do that once just read the narrative. And if you get to the parts where it seems like it's not really advancing the narrative very much, just skip through a bit. Speed read. Depending on how you define speed reading, of course. So what's, where is this going? Okay, you think about it, then this uh, picture is what we call the worldview onion. We use this quite a bit in teaching about worldview and different things. But when you think about it, behavior What the Paling people are doing every day is rooted in what they value, right? What they value, what they think is good. What they think is good probably comes from some beliefs that they have been taught. And the way that those beliefs were taught to them is through the stories. Got me? So, if we think about how we're going to unravel this mixture of things, what's the best way for us to begin? To use the story. To go back into the story as God revealed it and start working our way back through the story and allowing the story to inform what we believe and allowing that to transform what we value and then allowing that to produce the behavior. It's very important. You can't can't simply layer on behavioral change on top of wrong foundations. It won't work. It's like trying to remodel a house with with a rotten foundation, and you just keep fixing and fixing and fixing and fixing, but nothing ever works. So getting down into this foundation and allowing people's hearts to change from the inside out as they interact with the story, with the things that God wanted us to know about him through the stories. Uh, A quick example of that is the story of Cain and Abel. When they came and they offered their sacrifices, Cain's offering was not accepted, if you recall, and Abel's was, and of course God was in that. Cain killed his brother Abel. Uh, What's in the story? That's just one small story in the string of stories. But that small story tells us a lot about God. Tells us how we ought to approach God. It tells us a lot about sin. It tells us a lot about what God is like, all knowing. Seeing the heart. There's a lot of things that we can pick out of that story that help us develop our understanding of who God is. But that story is just one story. It's because it's part of this bigger whole that reaffirms and confirms the story all the way through. And so this narrative is very important to us. So I want to take a look at the book of Acts, and I just want to observe a couple things, all right? We don't have a lot of time, but I'd like to take us in the book of Acts, and I would like you to think with me about how the early church... Shared the Gospel, and these first examples are primarily having to do with Jews. If you think about it in Acts chapter two, Peter is speaking to Jews now Jews they knew the backstory, right? They had a thorough understanding of their own Jewish history, and they had a good understanding of of what the rabbis what the Jewish people believed about creation and about the fall and about all of those things. And so with the Jews, what Peter did on the day of Pentecost is he simply started with an Old Testament prophet, Joel, and then he jumped into the life of David, and he showed some prophecies from the life of David, and then he zeroed in, and he says, this is the Jesus that you crucified. God raised him up. Uh, Stephen's message at his stoning. Stephen does a very similar thing in Acts chapter 7. He picks up the story with Moses, uh, with, with Abraham, sorry, the nation of Israel, the patriarchs, and then with Moses and the giving of the law. And then he says, and then there was the prophets. One by one, the prophets came and they told about the coming Messiah. And then when the Messiah came, what did you do? You killed him. You rejected him, and now as you pick up those stones to throw them at me, you're going to do the exact same thing again, trying to kill the voice that are, of those who are speaking truth to you. And they were they were cut to the heart. <laughs> they they got so angry they were gnashing their teeth at Stephen. Think about it in. Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's running along in his chariot. He's a God-fearer. He's been exposed to the truth of what Judaism taught. He's been hanging around with Jewish people. He'd just come from Jerusalem to worship. And he's reading in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah. And and and, uh, Philip comes along and says, What are you reading? Do you understand it? No, I don't understand it. Can you explain it to me? And and Philip is able to pick up the story and take it through its conclusion. You could look at the story of Peter and Cornelius; similar things happening here. Acts chapter thirteen, Paul and Barnabas uh, in Antioch of Pisidia, and this is they finally they're in the synagogue. But then they they find that there are those in the synagogue there uh, that need to understand the conclusion to the story. And so what we see in these passages is simply this that as they are telling these stories, they are picking up the narrative at the place of the last understanding, right? They're trying to determine what is it that this audience understands about the God of the Bible and how do I take them from there to an understanding of the gospel? Now what happens... When we come to people who like the paling people, they didn't have all of that background understanding of the Bible. So their story of creation was different. Their story of what went wrong is different. Their story of how we fix it is different. Their story of what happens in the end is different. So do I just come in and preach the gospel to them? No, I have to start in a different place. And if we go back and we look at how Paul did that in Acts chapter 17. Now, this is a fairly long section, so we're not going to read all of it, but I want you to, to think about it with me. In Acts 17, Paul comes to Athens, and he sees this city filled with idols, idol worshipers. And then he finds this one place where they have this inscription to the unknown God. And what he does, is he, he, as he uh, is portrayed as a babbler, a foreigner, he's, somehow he earns the right to speak. Over the course of a very short time in this conversation, doesn't appear to have taken long, he earns the right to be heard. And they actually ask him, would you explain what you are this new teaching to us? Then if we look forward in the story, so Paul stands up in the midst of this Areopagus, this place where they were meeting, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's looking at all the things that they do, right? And he's observing their religion. Much the same way that if you went to Paling, you would observe very, very religious people. They they are so faithful in their church attendance. If you walk through the village on Sunday morning during church, there is absolutely no one not at church. It's because they are very religious, but they're also very confused. Paul saw that these people were religious. He saw this inscription to the unknown God, And he says, what you worship as unknown, I'm going to explain to you. And he starts where? Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. He goes right back and he's going to talk about this God that to them is unknown. And he is the one that made everything. Starting in Genesis chapter 1. And Paul, of course, does a fairly short version of it according to what's in the Scripture. We don't know, actually, that he didn't add more detail to his message. But he says, He does not live in temples made with hands. He, you can't feed him. You can't make a house for him. You see, in, in pagan cultures where people are thinking that, they're, that the spirits are all around, they're always trying to make the spirits comfortable. Paul says you can't do that. God doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need your food, the spirits, the spirits of the ancestors in the graves. You're putting the food out there. God doesn't need food. He created everything. He created man. It says that he longs to be known by us. In fact, it calls him. God's offspring. We are God's offspring. Simply, I think, a reference to the fact that we're made in God's image. We're made in God's image. We're His offspring. We're we're like the the fruit of what He did. And so, we see that uh, as the story unfolds in the last part, then, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of His divine being is like gold, silver, stone, or something that we can make with our hands. The times of ignorance, God passed over. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. And that simply means that God is in the business of asking all people everywhere, no matter what they have been believing, to have a complete change of mind. And that change of mind is going to come about when they hear a different story and they begin to backtrack and start to figure things out from the beginning and they begin to unpack the God of the Bible and begin believing in what he said as truth. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, Jesus. And he's given us assurance of that by raising him from the dead. He's fixed a day. There's a coming day of judgment. And on that day, every person is going to stand before him. And on that day, it's going to matter a great deal what you have believed about him. Well, like everywhere, some people listened and believed. Some people said, maybe, but I'm not ready. And some people said, no. The good thing is that no almost never means no forever. Maybe is an open door for us to start discipling people to the truth. And when somebody says yes, they become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a lot of hope. When we come to the scripture, the narrative, we recognize the value of the narrative in bringing people to the truth. You know, our culture is badly gone wrong. And people are not growing up in our culture in America today with a biblical worldview. We have to stop the assumptions that when we meet somebody, that when somebody walks into church, that when we we get to know somebody and we hear they grew up going to church, we've got to stop assuming that they have a biblical foundation and start with the very beginning. Here's just some observations. And I'm going to close here in a minute. Paul is knowledgeable of the culture around him. I think we need to be that too. He earns the right to be heard. In the beginning, he was just considered a babbler, somebody that nobody ought to listen to. But somehow, in a very short time, he gained a hearing. He identifies a starting place for his communication. He he took some time to try to figure out, where do I begin with these people with this person in this situation where do i begin it's a thoughtful process think about it bringing it back to god and his character bringing it back to the things that will shape we don't need to argue about religion we just need to come back to shaping people's understanding of who god really is He used everyday culture to illustrate. He he focused on the message of the centrality of Christ. So important. And then identifies the responses. And Paul followed up. He, he, He worked with people. He was very aware of how they were responding to the message. So how did we apply all this? Well, we think about it this way our need to be students of the culture around us, how to be in the world but not of it, how to have a good grasp. You know, I I find, as as I've been circulating around the United States for a few months here, a couple months, um, a lot of people criticizing our culture. Like Christians, bashing our culture. Nothing good to say about our culture. Well, they're part of it. Or, just simply bashing the culture without going back to the story and figuring out how we unravel those things. So our testimony needs to earn us the right to be heard. We really need to be people that people want to listen to. People want to listen to. Trying to find those natural starting places, events and situations. Uh, I don't have time for... Just a quick story. I was in a Starbucks in Milwaukee a few weeks ago, and I talked to the guy. He was a Turkish Muslim. I knew he was a Muslim. He brought up a conversation. He started complaining about the weather to me. And as soon as he brought up the weather and how bad it was in Milwaukee, I said, Sir, are you forgetting who created the weather? And right away, we were in a three-hour conversation about the God of the Bible. It works. It works. It works. As we engage people where they're at, we need to always bring back to God and His character. It's not about religion. Using everyday culture, sometimes it's helpful, not as a substitute for Scripture. What about focusing on the message of the gospel? Making sure that it's central to what we talk about, the message of the gospel. And then finally, identifying responses and following up with people. It's very practical, really. And we can do that. So I want to challenge you. The secret church, I've read a lot of David Platt's stuff. I love it. And I've listened to that particular series. I'm not sure it's the same one, but I've listened to a couple of the secret church series. I want to tell you, you need to be there to engage our culture, to learn to engage our culture with God's word. Getting back to the basics. Encourage your children to read through the Bible and encourage them with the narrative. Again, you know, that's the one thing that sets people off is they get started reading. They're going to read this year. I'm going to read Genesis to Revelation. And they get started and they get bogged down in some of the harder parts. Learn to read the narrative first. It's easy to go back and to fill in gaps once you get a grasp of the whole narrative. So these are important principles. And I'd like to ask you just to be praying for us as we do this around the world, different places. uh, We encourage people to go back to the story of the God of the Bible. And we try to get that in the language that's best understood by them. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had this morning to be together as your people and to engage in this important topic. I pray that each one of us would wrestle with the implications for us. Maybe for some here, Lord, they have not ever read the narrative. And so they're confused by some of the things that are part of being a believer in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be engaging. Lord, I pray for those who are witnessing to others, trying to share their faith with others, if there's some here, Lord, who are not sure where they stand before you on the day of judgment, I ask that they would seek answers to that question. Thank you for the privilege we've had of sharing your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.